Allegories are awkward, absurd, invented, obsolete, loose rags, end quote. Such a method of interpretation, he, he opined, quote, degenerates into a mere monkey game, end quote. Quote, allegory is a sort of beautiful harlot who proves herself specially seductive to idle men, end quote. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a most gracious God who has seen fit to inspire men to write your word. I know, Lord, that your word has been criticized far beyond any book that has ever been written because men are hostile, alienated from you, from Adam. We're all born into a race of people who hate the one true God that has given us life. It's just the nature of the sin that so penetrates this whole human race. I I give you praise for your word by the great by your grace. I thank you, Lord, for all the men throughout history that have praised your word, that have given themselves to the study of your word and to ex- exegete it, to to expound on its passages, its true meaning. I thank you, Lord, that all of that is by your grace while it's otherwise been hated and people have tried to eradicate it from the reading of men. But it stands true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. God, you cannot pass away. You are a life, the source of life, the eternal life. And for this, we give you the praise and the honor and the glory, and I pray that you would help me as I think through the those things that I want to share in this lesson. I pray that your, your Holy Spirit would be present and that you would use me as a channel of blessing to speak to those who might be listening. I ask these things for your honor, your glory, your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first part of this lesson, this lesson is from episode 82, How to Understand the Bible. And uh, part one will look at metaphors, allegories, and biblical exegesis. And so here we begin. What I want to do in this lesson is I I really want to raise the awareness of not just the Word of God and portions of the Word of God that really need to be looked at carefully, not placing our own opinions and ideas upon what we think they mean, but on what they actually mean. Now, people say, well, you know, well, you know, what's that mean? Who, who are you? Who can, who can say? And that's where I want to start today. Because I want to look at future things. And when you're looking at prophecy, whether it's an Old Testament prophet's or prophecies, or New Testament prophets, or prophecies. You know, the truth is the same, 
we have this mindset that's been around for a very long time. You know that every man has to interpret it for himself and everybody's entitled to their interpretation. And I just want to say at the outset that it's a lie from the devil. No one, and I mean no one, has a right to interpret the Bible according to their own ideas. No one. I mean, think about it. And I ask people this all the time. So you go out and you write a book. And you know what your intention is. You know what your idea is. You know what you're trying to say. Now, maybe you can't say it really well. Some people can say things really well. Others struggle more. But you, you go out and you sit down and you spend your time and you exhort or exhaust yourself in trying to bring about this idea that you're trying to say. And then a man, 10 different men come along and they come to you and they tell you, no, you, you didn't mean that. No, this is what this means. And they're arguing with one another and all these different, and nobody's getting it right. And you're sitting there and you're like, well, guys, this is what I, wait, I, this is no. I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, how would anyone feel about that? You're the author. You wrote it. You had your intention. It's no different with the Bible. It doesn't matter how many men God used to write it. We call it the word of God. We don't call it the word of Paul or Moses or whoever the writer might have been. We're, we are channels by which God works in, in, in each one of our individual lives. And then those particular men, specific men that God choose, chose to use to write down his word. So what's that mean? Well, let's start by saying that the word of God, is the only way, and I'll get to this in a little bit, is to take it for what it means literally. Now, wait a minute. There's not just literal text. I would disagree. There are. The only thing is there are such a, there is such a thing as a metaphors in the Bible. We all know what a metaphor is. You know, we see a metaphor in the Lamb of God. Does that mean that Jesus was a lamb? No. It means that God's trying to express qualities of a lamb in the person of Jesus Christ. We can see it. What's a lamb? Well, it's not a bear. It's not a lion. It doesn't kill. It doesn't devour. It, it will allow itself to be shone. You know, you can go over to it. You can take a razor. You can cut off. You're not going to have a problem with a lamb. They may be afraid, but they will not attack. They don't have weapons of attack. Wolves have no problem killing lambs. That's part of the characteristic of a lamb. Jesus is seen not only as a lamb, but a lion in Revelation and in other places. Well, does that mean that he has teeth and fangs and he has a mane and he looks like a lion? No, it's, that's, that's, it, it, it's trying to say, God is saying in using that term, that there are characteristics of Christ. And we're not saying an animal, we're just saying there are characteristics of a lion. And this can go on a building. The church is not made of brick and mortar. We understand that. It's made up of human people that fit together like you fit together a building of stone. Peter says that. So what are the characteristics of a building? Different stones with different shapes and sizes and they're all fitted together and it makes one building. And, and there's metaphor after metaphor but we don't take the metaphor, we don't mix metaphors. We use them the way they're meant to be used in the context. Context is everything in the scripture. It's everything when we speak. And we all understand that too. All you have to do is watch the media, listen to the news, read the newspaper or on 
the web now, you know, wh- what is it saying? Well, what it's, what it's saying is, you know, it, de- it depends. You know, men take clippets and they'll chop it up into pieces that they want you to see and then they'll twist it to mean something other than what it was meant to say. If you get the whole clip, you get an entirely different picture of whatever took place. Now there, what you have is mixing and not telling the truth. Mixing up the text, the video, you know, the audio tape, whatever it is, in a, in a way that's actually lying. And we see this, we, if you're paying attention, you can see this all the time. It's regular. Or you have men that are just dishonest in what they say. What's the, you know, an advertisement for insurance? We got your back. Personally, I don't think there's ever been a case where I've had to, you know, got insurance, maybe one, I don't know, I don't think any um, accident or whatever took place, and then you have to fight for what you've been paying into for how long. Well, if you got my back, why do I have to fight? And I know there could be reasons there's people want to steal or lie about that, but at the same time, uh, never in your lifetime having to make an argument or defend yourself or prove, you know, it's a little hard for me to look at it and say, well, yeah, you got my back. I understand you're always, you're always out for me. That, 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 I hope I'm making a point here. The scripture is not like that. The scripture of all books, which is written by Almighty God, is not meant to be looked at as something that is not completely true. It is just that. It is absolutely and completely true. Now, what happened is in church history, You had the writings of the apostles, which became Holy Scripture. You had a period of time when they put those writings together and they they formed it into an entire book. You had Old Testament, New Testament. And, uh, And from there, men started to read and try to understand what it was. And it wasn't really long, a few centuries before, and even early, right from the beginning in some ways, you know, they were... uh, they were using allegories. They were spiritualizing mystical meanings behind the text. Didn't actually mean what it said. It's just that God has this way of talking about things that's unclear. And it's not clear, and it's not basic, and it's not simple. It's from God. You know, and all of that was very wrong, and it twisted things for hundreds and hundreds of years until towards the time of the reformers who began to understand that these things became very were actually very simple and very clear. I'm going to be reading from a book called Toward Even Exegetical Theology by Walter C. Kaiser Jr. And in this book he talks brings out a lot of history and about what I'm trying to talk about that the Bible is not allegorical but literal. And this is what he says in, on page 44 in the introduction. He said, uh, It is quite clear from even this limited New Testament usage that the term exegesis is closely related to hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. There are about 20 occurrences uh, related words in the New Testament, half of which mean to translate. Thus, Matthew 1.23 translates the Hebrew word Emmanuel to mean God with us. While Mark 5.41 translates the Aramaic expression Talitha kum, 
or little girl, get up. But the related word, and he gives it in the Greek, meant to expound or to interpret, as when an Old Testament passage was selected and its meaning was set forth to an audience other than that of the original authors. For example, when Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets to, quote-unquote, expound all the things concerning his own person and mission, Luke 24, 27, traditionally then, exegesis and hermeneutics focused on the text itself in an effort to determine what the text said and meant in its original objective. Its original objective. What was the objective of the writer? It might, might be the human person doing the writing, but always remembering behind that person there was God putting down his stamp and his meaning. And that would always come through the human instrument. Human instrument is the pen. No matter how free his will was to write from his own thoughts and his own ideas, God was using that for his end. Unfortunately, and I don't have to explain that, you know, the Bible itself tells that the Bible itself, the Word of God, is of no personal interpretation by Peter. Unfortunately, um, Kaiser goes on and says, this emphasis was not always maintained in all periods of church history. Under the strong impetus of the Reformation, there was a renewed emphasis that there is only one sense or meaning to be gleaned from every passage if the interpreter is true to his mission. So that's the mission. What's the mission? It is to find out what the sense or meaning of a pa- or any particular passage was by its author. It is precise, precisely, he's at this point, further down he goes on to say, that the issue gets sticky for modern interpreters. While all would, to some degree or another, um, dis- disparage exegesis as a poor substitute, eisegesis, I'm sorry, as a poor substitute for exegesis, and eisegesis is reading into and exegesis is reading out of. So disparage eisegesis as a poor substitute for exegesis. Not all are convinced that the discipline can be defined in such objective terms. Meaning for many moderns has become plural. They see various levels of meaning. So they're, they're mixing the two. And this has always gone on. Men want to impress their own thoughts upon the passage, rather than only allowing that which is in the passage to come out. And that's where the good interpretations and the bad ones come from. Then I'm going to read this paragraph that I think is excellent from page 47. And this is what Kaiser says here. Therefore, while hermeneutics will seek to describe the general and special principles and rules which are useful in approaching the biblical text. Exegesis will seek to identify the single truth, intention of individual phrases, clauses, and sentences as they make up the thought of paragraphs, 
sections, and ultimately entire books. Let me make clear here what he's saying, if you don't get it. What he's saying here, that there are principles, good, solid, hermeneutical principles, which help us to understand by this principle, like context, keeping it in context keeps the idea going. Well, the principle of the original meaning of the word, whether it's Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, putting those principles into practice. What does this word mean? What did it mean at the time it was written? What is the intent? All of those principles, they, they describe the general special principles and rules. However, exegesis will seek to identify the single truth and in, truth intention of individual phrases. They're breaking down the phrase. What is the intent of this phrase, this clause, this sentence, this paragraph, this section, and ultimately the entire book? Breaking it down, breaking it down, breaking it down, seeing the whole, seeing the forest for the trees, seeing the tree like Luther put it, seeing the branch, seeing the leaf, uncovering everything we can to understand what was the meaning of the passage. This is the kind of hard work it takes. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you're not willing to do that work, then take one back, that giant step back and say, I don't know what this says. Well, you might as well say that because you're either going to listen to a commentator, a preacher, a teacher, a professor, whoever title is attached to the person, and you're going to say, he knows better. But see, I don't really know for myself. Unless you're going to do the work, then you have to ultimately say, I don't really know. If you're listening to someone else and you're going on what they're saying and you're not doing your work, and it's a lot more work than we're willing to admit. You know, it's, not, it's more than just looking up a Greek word and say, oh, I got the meaning of the passage. Yeah, no. There's syntax, you know, what does the verb, how it's be, the verb is being used, the, the noun, the pronouns, the adjectives, you know, what, you got to look at it all if you're really going to do your homework. Accordingly, he goes on, hermeneutics may be regarded as the theory that guides exegesis. Exegesis may be understood in this work to be the practice of and the set of procedures for discovering the author's intended meaning. So you got the rules, you got the principles, now you got to apply them. That's exegesis. There's no good sense in having a rule and you never pay attention to it. So that's the difference and that's what he's saying and that's what we, we have to do. Now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to look at a little history. It's very important. History is always important, very important. Exceedingly important. And he goes into Thomas Aquinas who was on the right track, but he didn't stay the course at times. He made a clear distinction between two orders of facts, which, while being closely connected, nevertheless have different values. The Holy Spirit speaks to us clearly in some texts, for his message is readily apparent in the natural or literal sense of the words. By interpreting these words literally, the theologian establishes his conclusion of theology. Now, he was good, but he, he strayed away from time at times, as men do. And then they start to take matters in their own hands, and they start saying, well, maybe not in this passage. And they're doing that today to a great extent. Meanwhile, he goes on to say, a Jewish believer, Nicholas 
of lira, 7, 1270-1340, so this is going considerably back before the Re uh, Reformation, began to press the literal sense as the only reasonable basis for exegesis. What an important role he played in the history of exegesis is apparent in the celebrated aphorism, quote, if Lyra had not piped, Luther would not have danced, end quote. If Lyra had not piped, Luther would not have danced. Luther understood the principles set forth by Lyra that God used to put in place hundreds of years before Luther came on the scene. And that's true of Luther and both Calvin. They took Lyra seriously. Not all the time, but most of the time. They took him very seriously. So out of the Renaissance, with its new emphasis on a return to the original languages, he continues of Scripture, come Johann Rucklin, Hebrew grammar and lexicon, and Erasmus, first critical edition of the Greek New Testament. In part, they set the groundwork for the arrival of Martin Luther and John Calvin. 1516. Also, Erasmus was stimulated by John Colette, 1467-1519. So all of these men are coming together in the providence of God to bring about the importance that Luther and Calvin played, not only in bringing back the gospel through this study and this means of a proper exegesis, but also in laying the groundwork that was laid prior to them in taking a literal literal approach. You know, I, I was in church one time, and it was a Sunday evening, and I know where the man was coming from who was going to share a short teaching, uh, that, which was usually done on, on Sunday nights, and he's going to look at, an, uh, at, a, at a minor prophet. One of those short, shorter books, not minor by content, but minor by size, and he looks into this book, and I don't remember which one it was, and his, pre his preamble, his, his statement before he ever got started on the book was, I have no idea what this chapter means. To which I thought to myself, if you don't know what it means, why are you speaking? Why would a man propose to set forth what God has said, and he's already stating he has no idea what it means. Why, could he, why did he even make that statement? And I know why. Because he's coming from it ahead of time, knowing that thinking, believing, in a cockeyed kind of way, that it's not literal. It's, a, it's an allegory. And I haven't really talked about allegories yet, and I will. You know, that as an allegory, it, it has a meaning behind the meaning. And the problem with allegories is the only one who knows the meaning is the author. I'll give you an illustration. So uh, I'm watching the movie, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, um, and, the, and the movie was um, the story, I can't think of the title right now, um, where the man is living the same day over and out, over and over, right? Groundhog Day. And so he's... he's, he's He's going through this day, which he hates, where they're going to bring out the groundhog. The groundhog supposedly is talking to this guy. And then the man is going to say what the groundhog meant in, in groundhog ease, right? Perfect illustration of this movie, which the movie then goes on 
to do the same day over and over and over again. And in the process of it, the main character, Bill Murray, he goes from this just lunatic, this, this self-serving, self-centered individual who was a creep, and he goes through life and he just wants to use people for his own good. He has no respect for anyone but himself. You know, he's the, 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 the weatherman and he's this great guy who knows the weather. He makes the weather. And in the beginning, he's arguing that there's not going to be a snowstorm and he's just this jerk. But in the course of living the same day over and over again, he comes to this awareness of who he is. And at one point, in the story, he actually says, you know, I've, I've died so many times, it's as if I don't exist anymore. He got to the place where he couldn't live the day anymore, and he started committing suicide. But the next day, he's alive again. And so, you know, whether he's standing in front of a truck or he's throwing himself off a building, you know, he just wakes up the next morning. And as a result of that, he can't kill himself, and so he just has this moment where he sees himself for what he is, and so to speak, he re- begins to repent. And he starts to turn his ways towards, in the end, all he does is live for other people. And I see in this picture, in this movie, in this story, you know, this picture of repentance. And he's got his eyes on this woman who he respects so much, and she's almost like a picture of Jesus. Like Jesus is the one who we see his character and his love and his compassion, his unselfishness and his sacrificial love, and we want to be like him, and he starts to become like him. And so I wrote, wrote this story about what this behind this story, I wrote an article and I sent it off and the guy said, well, this was great and we would have used it except you were too late. You know, the movie had already come out. And they sent me all this material on how to write and all this stuff. And that's when I first got thought, well, maybe I could do some writing. But the, the end of this story is I eventually sat down and researched what did the writer mean you know, by the writer's own words. And the writer tells what he meant by the story and it had absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. There wasn't a spiritual thought in that entire story. And so that's an allegory. Who knew what the meaning was? The writer of the story. But I could put my, my meaning into it, and I can see, look, you can see this, you can see that, and you can see the other thing, but that's not what the story was meant to say. And you definitely don't want to do that with the Bible. That's how allegories work. Metaphors and allegories are completely different. Metaphors are picture. A picture that gives you meaning. I had someone tell me that just last night. The difference between someone who's philosophical, I think he was talking about, we were talking about Jordan Peterson, and he's saying, this guy is a great philosopher, but he hasn't got a clue about spiritual things. Now, what he says can be used spiritually, and if you're a spiritually-minded man, and you listen to this philosopher, who's kind of like my dad before he got saved, who had, was great as far as common sense. And he could think philosophically through life and through experiences and through the war and through all these things. And he could always, he would always tell me, Joe, no matter what happens, no matter what education you get, always have common sense, what he used to use. And that's true of, of a Jordan Peterson. He's a great philosopher, and there's a lot of men like that. Not a lot, but there's men like that. And, and, and so you could look at these men and you say, wow. But then you can start to look at them as if they're talking biblically, as if they're talking from Scripture. And that's just not true. The meaning behind what they say may sound like Bill Murray and that story. It may sound biblical, but is that what the man really means? 
does he mean that the, the Bible, Jordan, you know, that the Bible should be taken literally? No, I don't mean that at all. Uh, you know, is Jesus Christ the Son of the living God? And is uh, repentance the only way of salvation? Is Christ the way, the truth, and the life? No, I don't mean those things at all. And so you can't confuse, you know, philosophers, as great as they might be, with spiritual men and with biblical truth or exegesis. You, you don't do that. And you don't take allegories to mean as though those are spiritual or literal interpretations of the Bible either. So in conclusion of this part of this, of this lesson, Calvin, uh, Calvin uh, Walter Kaiser goes on to say, was not one whit softer on the allegories uh, coming off of Luther. Luther just completely tears up allegories. Let me go back to uh, Luther where it says, for, for Luther, the Holy Ghost is the all simplest writer that is in heaven or earth. Therefore, his words can have no more than one simplest sense, which we call the scriptural or literal meaning. Before that, he said, Luther's clear affirmation that the single meaning of the text is the only proper basis for exegesis marked another new impetus in biblical interpretation. His comments on the allegorical method were just as strong as they were clear. Said he characteristically, quote, organs, allegories are not worth so much dirt, end quote. For, quote, allegories are empty speculations, the scum of Holy Scripture, end quote. Allegories are awkward, absurd, invented, obsolete, loose rags, end quote. Such a method of interpretation, he, he opined, quote, degenerates into a mere monkey game, end quote. Quote, allegory is a sort of beautiful harlot who proves herself specially seductive to idle men, end quote, meaning their lack of study. For Luther, quote, the Holy Ghost is the all simplest writer that is in heaven or earth. Therefore, his words can have no more than one simplest sense, which we call the scriptural or literal meaning. So Calvin was not one with softer on allegories. Comment on Galatians 4, 21 to 26, he blasted every such introduction and foisting of numerous meanings onto Scripture as a contrivance of Satan. And so these two men were very hard, very hard on allegories, as they should have been. More than any other, Calvin and Luther reversed the exegetical tide which had been ebbing and flowing for and against allegorization since before the Christian era. Not that, not that they themselves were always successful in their own practice of their principles, but they had set a course for the church that was now most clearly marked for all future days. And with that, I want to close on this section of this lesson, thanks to uh, Toward an Exegetical Theology, by Walter C. Kaiser, Jr. Let the allegories go. And I'm bringing this up because I'm going to be looking at a passage from Scripture, from Revelation, and whether it's Revelation, New Testament prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, people love to allegorize. 
Some people allegorize Old Testament prophets and the book of Revelation into oblivion because it has no sense of the original meaning because they're not taking the text literally. Let us remember wisely what the Reformers taught and let us stay true to their original understanding and how God enlightened their mind so they gave us back the gospel. Let us use that as well in, in understanding the gospel message that we proclaim. I mean, nothing is more important uh, when we think about teaching and preaching and proclaiming the word of God as what, we're gonna, what we call the gospel. And the gospel we're going to, as we look at it, I want us to consider that it is that message of proclamation by which people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I mean, until that point, we really have nothing. Uh, and, and understanding the gospel is also understanding exactly who we are and how we got to where we are. So back at the time of the Great Awakening, and so let's move from the uh, Reformation to the, great, to the Great Awakening, and that's where there was this return after 900 years of this loss of understanding of the gospel um, where men were captured by a church that had this tremendously huge, um, top-heavy leadership, beginning with a, a pope and cardinals and bishops and down to priests and then average people who couldn't even understand the Bible. You didn't give people the Bible and they couldn't understand the Bible. It was just for the educated elite. And let's not knock that whole system too badly unless we understand the system that we're in and come under self-condemnation. So that's where comes <clears throat> excuse me, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the men of the Reformation. And I, I want to just mention this because even if I've gone into it already, but before we get to the Great Awakening, it's important to know uh, what, what they were awakened to originally in the 15, beginning in the 1500s, really, when men understood, and there's the five pillars of the Reformation. And on those pillars, you had the, the, the uh, Scripture alone. And we're not going to listen to any men, traditions, ideas that, that originated men. We're going to take the Bible and we're going to take it from the, as the pure Word of God and we'll understand that it came from God and then we're going to go from there and only from there. And then from there, they, they went to understand that there is the, you know, Christ alone and faith alone, justification alone, and lastly, you know, the, the, to the glory of God alone. And so you have those five pillars, and on those five pillars, we build a gospel. And basically, those five pillars are built on God alone. Because God alone can justify a soul. God alone sent Christ to die on the, the cross, and he, he died alone. He did his work. It's who he is. And then it's by faith alone. There's no works attached. It's by grace alone. Only grace can save. 
Otherwise, you go back into a, a works-based, and all of this came out of a study, as I've already explained, of the gospel. So now you speed ahead to the early to late 1700s, a, a, a period spanning really about 40 years. And during that 40 years between England and Scotland and, and America, other parts of Europe, there was this awakening as to the gospel because they had fallen asleep again. Luther knew right away, you know, in one generation it was going to disappear if people didn't, weren't fervent to every new generation has to recapture the gospel message because the devil will do everything in his power and men, natural men, will go back to where they want to go. And where they want to go is a dead gospel, a liberal gospel, a gospel that's no gospel at all, really. And so, what is the no gospel? Well, I want to go through this. Going back to a man who is the lightning rod of the Great Awakening, which was George Whitfield. And George Whitfield, if you study the story, and there's a great work, George Whitfield by Dalimore, you know, you go through in his early days, I mean, he literally was one of the first Methodists, and he was religious, and he, he went to, uh, you know, Oxford and all of that, and, and, and he believed himself to be a Christian. Well, the more he investigated, his, his Christianity was built on works, and, you know, when you define, okay, what's a Christian, and, you know, it's going to go back to, unless a man is really understands the true gospel, it will return to good works, and good men, and good everything but God, and grace, and all that I just said the gospel is built upon. And he was there. And actually he went through a period where he actually couldn't eat anymore. He was looking at the sovereignty of God, and in that he couldn't do anything to save himself. And I'll, I'll get to it in a, in a little bit. And because of that, he just he stopped eating and almost perished in 30 days. Until towards the end of that time, he, he looked at a little pamphlet and someone who was talking about the gospel, and he, he reached out to Christ, and he was broken in repentance and, and the way men did, great men in history. It wasn't like just a simple, oh, receive Jesus, you know, and uh, oh, happy times. And No, these men were deeply, deeply crushed and broken, kind of like David, who uh, saw his sin and then wrote about it in two different Psalms, and, uh, and it, it, his bones withered. You know, he just was devoured by his sin. Only in this case, it's entering into the kingdom of God for the first time through a born-again experience. Like Jesus talking to Nicodemus, you know, you know, what must I do to gain eternal life? And well, you know, you, you must be born again. We know you're a great teacher from God. You know, okay, great. So, uh, you know, you, you need to be born again. Well, uh, this past week, Matt work, client had been coming in like three weeks, I think, previously. And he came to me because he wanted to learn how to be a better father, and he was concerned about two new kid, children from another marriage. And the, the first one, you know, broke up, and he, uh, had, they're like 19 and 21 years old, and they're out of the house, and they're gone. And now these other two, and he's now broken up again, and so at one point now, four weeks into this, sharing about fathering, I looked at him and I began by saying, uh, so tell me, where are you at spiritually? And went to where we usually go 
until you know I'm a Christian and all of this. And okay, so what's what's a Christian look like? What's what's the definition of a Christian? And then you know it always comes down to basically being good. Okay, being good. And so we got into this question of the sovereignty of God. I was basically bringing it into discussion. And as I spoke about God as sovereign in salvation, it's really in his hands and he's God and we're not. And, you know, at one point he sat up kind of straight and he looked at me and he said, well, well, what about free will? Now, of course, there are two segments in our Christian society today. And there's the side on, you know, that are poo-pooed, the, the Luthers and the Calvins and, you know, predestination, like it's a dirty word and it's not a biblical word. You know, and that whole side of it. And, uh, and then there's the side of, well, everyone has to have a free will because men can't be free, because, have to be free, because unless they're free, then it's not a gospel of grace and it can't be of works. And somehow they attribute God being sovereign and him making a choice to equaling, you know, that you're working your way to heaven. Rather than uh, if, if, it isn't, if it is an act of free will, that actually it isn't of grace. And, you, you know, I don't know where you're going to stand on this where you're, when you're listening, but give it a, a good listen to. Give me a, a few more minutes to kind of, you know, uh, make this whole line of thinking at least somewhat more complete. So in this discussion with this gentleman about spirituality, and when he said, well, what about free will? Uh, I said to him, uh, well, and I, and I quoted from Martin Luther, who actually said, well, if what you mean by free will is um, uh, a choice, then you're using far too grandiose a term. Far too grandiose a term when you're referring to free will as it is making a choice. What did, what did he mean by that? So, okay, in the morning, you can put your left shoe on first or your right. Your, your life is full all day long every day of choices. Those choices that you have the freedom to do what you want have no moral implication in it whatsoever. It's just a freedom of choice. And you look at that and you go, of course I'm free. I can do whatever I want. To which I stopped him and I stop you right now if I need to and say to you, okay, so you want to make a choice. Here's a choice. Choose to walk to the moon. Can you do that? Can you control the sun that's in the middle of our solar system? Can you control the stars? Can you fly? Can you become a duck? You see, the limitations on choices are a lot. There's one being in the universe that has no whatsoever limitations on his choices, and that's God. And he's the only one. A man can be limited or an angel can be limited by goodness and righteousness and holiness and those choices that he now makes, which he can be freed by God to make those choices, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But in his freedom, he's still limited to do what's right. God, by his holy character, is limited always to do what's good and holy and righteous or right. And he does. That's how he behaves. That's who he is. And it's all through the scriptures who God is that he's sovereign in his choices. But he's free. But he's free because he, he, he's, he's ultimately free. I mean, he can speak something into existence from nothing. 
And he's the only one in the universe that can do that or ever will do that. He, he just is completely free. We are slaves, to be true, truthful, completely truthful. We're either slaves to sin or we are slaves to righteousness. Now, are we free? Can you do whatever you want? Did, and at this point, that's when, uh, you know, me and the other person were kind of missing each other somewhat. And I then quoted from Jeremiah 13, 23. And this is the issue that Jeremiah is taking. He's taking a side here. And he says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Can a leopard change his spots? Well, obviously the answer is no. A tiger can't change his, his, his stripes. And here we're back to what's the power that we have within the choices that we make. A leopard can pounce upon someone and kill him if he gets the opportunity, but he's limited in his choices, just as we are. Now, the rest of this verse is very interesting because it goes on and it says, then you, as well, can do good. He doesn't ask a question. It's really sarcasm in this verse. Then you, as well, can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It's real high tone sarcasm coming from Almighty God. Then you as, as well can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The leopard can't change his spots. The sinner, basically is what he's saying, can change his ways. No, the, the sinner cannot change his ways. So you're going to choose, we're told, receive Jesus, it's all on you, you're free. So you can choose to make the most important decision of your entire life. And what is that decision? Well, here it is. Romans 8, 9, uh, Romans, yeah, Romans 9, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10. I, I apologize. Romans 10, 9 and 10. You know, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't even have to go on to the second part that talks about faith. Believing. The first part, right there. Now, you're the person who is a sinner. You're the, the leopard that can't change his spots. And you're now going to say, confess with your lips, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the decision you're faced with. You're going to decide to say, Jesus Christ, this is my life now belongs to you. I'm losing all control of my life. And I'm going to give it over to you. Because I understand repentance. Oh, as a sinful person, I'm now going to see with my blind eyes, for the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe, lest they, the light of the gospel of the, glory, of the glory of God should shine unto them. Now the lights go on, I guess all by themselves, and I look, or maybe God is making the lights go on, and I look and I'm going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord and Master, and I'm giving him full reign over my life. And I'm going to turn from the sin that I've done all my life long in hating God and taking control of my life. Let's say I'm not even doing anything wicked bad. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not stealing. You know, I'm not part of that part of society that just is brutal on other people. I'm not part of that. I'm just a, a good citizen. But as a good citizen, I really take control and don't let God, you know, show me what house to buy, you know, who to marry. Uh, how I treat my children. Just everything is under my control. Uh, now I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
chuck that. I'm going to say all of that is sin, all that disobedience, and I'm going to give Christ control of my life. And that brings us back to Jeremiah 13. Then you as well can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as uh, as Paul is making his case in the book of Romans. When it, By the time he gets to Romans 3, he finishes out, for all have sinned. Gentiles who have no law, Jews who have kept, who have, have been given to them the law to show them that they can't possibly keep the law. All of these people are all men with conscience that tells them right from wrong, even though they ignore it their whole life through. And you know they're going to be disobedient to parents and they're going to you know, tell fibs and they're going to backbite and gossip and you know, go through a long line of things that good people do all the time. And they're going to judge one another for what they do while they justify themselves. All of this sin that's going on, well, in the, by the freedom of our will, and, and, and remember, the people who are saying this say, you know, it's all of grace. You know, by the freedom of our will, we're going to choose this. Now, here's where the gospel is. The gospel is you're, you're not in control. Here's the Reformation gospel where God is sovereign. And as God is sovereign, he's, read a, he's written a scripture that men outside of their control, ha, he has written it. And then he's saying that salvation is by grace alone. There, there is no works in it. And the way this is proved out is because I'm in control of everything. <clears throat> I'm going to impart life-saving faith. I'm going to give you the power to believe. And then after I give you the power to believe, you're going to, I'm going to set you free by, and here's the two covenants. The old covenant says, keep the law and live. And the new covenant, which is found in Hebrews, <clears throat> along with Jeremiah, Hebrews 8 and 10, which says, I'm going to take my law, I'm going to write it on their mind, and I'm going to place it in their heart. So the new covenant is God doing something right from square one, right from A to B to C. I'm going to change the heart and this is going to be a born-again believer. And that born-again believer is now going to work and labor and love and out of appreciation and thanksgiving, he's going to live for Christ because he's been saved. Because he sees Christ on the cross taking his sins away, which he could not possibly do because he's a sinner. But Christ being sinless, an almighty God who could reach out into eternity and die for every single sin that he would ever commit and carry that away in his own body on the cross <clears throat> to oblivion so that uh, the man is not only forgiven all those sins and doesn't have to pay the penalty, but he's also raised from the dead so he can live a holy and righteous life. And so in conclusion of this, this message, what I want to do is just run through Romans chapter 8. And it's really good to have as a basis Romans 5, 6, and 7 where we see that we are actually in a new race and we're in a, in a new relationship uh, at, with God and we're also in a new marriage, freed from the law. And after you get those down, then you get to Romans 8. And what's Romans 8 say? Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, there's the identification. You're, you're placed in Christ. And in Christ, you're no longer in the race of Adam. You're no lo longer married to the law. You're not living in the flesh, raised from the dead. 
Romans 5 and 6 and 7. There's no condemnation. There's nothing to work for. I'm not working my way to heaven because I've been set free. Now I'm free by the new covenant to live for God. And that brings us to Romans 8 through 4 where it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Verse 3, For what the law could not do and it was weak, as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So now there's a walking according to the flesh which is continuing sin or walking in the Spirit by those who have been set free, given a new mind, a new heart, who have been born again, they've been raised from the dead. And this is why they threw uh, George Woodfield out of the church and put him into the fields because the ministers didn't want to hear about being born again. They, they, they prefer the liberal approach where people are good, they come to church, and they just try to be good because we don't want to really deal with the true gospel because it takes life out of our hands. And, and, and not only that, when life is in our hands, then we can say, well, you know, nobody's perfect, and we can continue in sin. But see, Romans 8 is not saying we continue in sin. It's saying we're free from sin, and we can actually live godly lives. Not perfect, uh, but that's a whole different matter of not perfect to being imperfect, but hating sin, hating ourselves, hating the flesh, uh, a conscience that every year goes stronger and more sensitive to sin, so I can't live with myself anymore, and so I have to turn and I have to be more uncompromising and more uncompromising and more uncompromising until I live a godly life. And no matter how great the struggle, the person who's saved and given a new mind and a new heart, is pushing forward to be better every day and makes no excuses. Few excuses, less and less and less excuses as to living an ungodly life. Which concludes in Romans 8, 5 through 8, where he says in verse 5, For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So you have the flesh and you have the Spirit, and it set you free. When you come through the sovereignty of God, you are set free. So verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. So you have to be set free, and when you're set free, your mind is set on spiritual things, the Holy Spirit making the word known, making it clear, and then bringing the power in. But a person who's, who stays in the flesh is not saved. You can be fleshly, but not in the flesh. And so when you're in the flesh, your mind is set on the flesh, and it is hostile toward God, he says, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, and it doesn't ever do that. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So it's not willing and it's not able. And this is in a man who has not had a heart change. He's not had a head change. He is, he is still in the flesh and he's lost. But a person who's set free, not by some ridiculous free will, but who's set free by the grace of God, by the justification that comes through God, by, by God-given faith through grace alone, for God's glory alone, justified in God's sight and freed from his former sins. 
So in verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're in the flesh, you can't please God. But if you're in the spirit, you can always please God. You may sin, and it comes to mind, you have a conscience issue, you confess the sin as a Christian, and you're cleansed from the guilt of sin. People who are not born again, people who are not saved by the grace of God, those people do not have an enlightened conscience. They have a conscience, but it's dirty. It sees themselves as good. It doesn't see them as evil, but justified and saved and believing and in the Spirit. It's a whole new awareness of who the person is. I'm in Christ. So last night when I think I'm dying, because I inhaled too much paint, and it was actually making it hard for me to to breathe, and in that I wasn't getting enough oxygen, and my pressure was going up. didn't go up too bad, but it was enough to make me feel horrible. And so while I'm waiting for the medics to come to see what's going on, and I'm praying to God, and I'm saying, I'm ready to go. I don't really want to have, you know, a, a heart attack. I'm not really want to do anything that's going to cause blood to keep from going to my brain and, and have some part of my body go, you know, limp the rest of my life. But God, if that's what you want, even though I don't want it, you know, so be it. I'm ready to go to heaven or I'm ready to endure what I need to here because when the, the, the demon that was alongside me and saying, you know, you're not really a Christian. If you die, and I, I said, talk to the hand at that moment, I know God. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with me, you know, being a Christian at that point. It's the fact that I have come into an intimate relationship with Christ and God, and I know God. And for that reason, and that reason alone, I'm going to heaven. And so the dialogues, you know, finished within 30 seconds. That was over. Because I know who I am. I know what my identity is. My identity is in Christ. And God did it all. I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm not resting in that. So that brings us to the the finish of this lesson. And I hope, my listeners, that you're really getting what's being sold here. You know, what's being sold is the Reformation and the Great Awakening. The men of the Reformation that said, look, this is how you exegete the word. You take it all literally. And then after you take it literally, you know, you, you take the gospel for what it is, and it's that which sets men in a place where they are so not in control they, that they become desperate for the cross. And that ultimately, of course, is something which God does when he calls people to salvation, when he ordains people to e- eternal life, and those people get desperate. And, and it's on our part, who are preachers of the gospel, to preach this gospel message. Because people who will be saved under the sovereignty of God will be saved. But then the question will be, you know, did we, were we part of that plan, or were we off preaching some other gospel that couldn't save anybody because we're telling them about a gospel that isn't a gospel at all? You get the meaning? I hope you do. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, that for us who take the word seriously by your grace and who understand that we we are to take the words literally. So when it says predestined, called, elect, chosen, you know, these these are words that have strict, serious meaning behind them, that you're a God who does what you do, just like you did at creation. Let there be light, there was light. You know, let, let there be 
whatever it was, and it was. Animals, mankind, trees and shrubs and dirt and water. You know, it all came into being in its place. The stars and the heavens and the planets that circle us and the, and the moon that, that rotates around this planet and all that is in this universe, you just stuck it out there. And it's just in space, and yet we have life and air and breath. Something so complicated, so, so complex, it couldn't possibly have evolved from nothing. It couldn't have come into being from nothing. Nothing can create nothing, and that's all the way it is. And here with this complexity, we know, Lord, that you are a being who is sovereign. Only the eternal being without beginning can bring everything into a place where they then exist and they're growing old and they're passing away until this heaven and earth are brought out of existence completely and a new heaven and a new earth where there's only light and nothing dark, where there's only the glory of God. For those of us chosen out of our, our, our disbelief, our unbelief, our hatred of God, our resistance to good, our rebellion against a God who is holy and just. No reason for any one of us to ever be saved. You could have sent the whole race into, in, into a place of torment, an eternal torment, but you chose by your grace to save some at a cost that we can't comprehend. We thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to the cross. Just this morning I was, saying, I was reading, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer, which he knew, but didn't make it any easier, you know, as a substitute, a sacrifice, you know, for those who, who were perishing, those who were dying, so that they might become a bride filled with your glory in no reason of their own, in total, total humility, knowing that they're worth, worthy of eternal damnation. And so for all eternity, we will be of that stock and that people who give you obedience because you deserve it, not only by reason of creation, which we denied, but by reason of redemption, because you died in our place to give us resurrected life. Lord, for these reasons and so many more, we give you the honor and the praise and the glory, and, and we pray that you would be pleased with this lesson and touch the hearts of many people for good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.